Hello, everyone. Welcome to the 51st episode of the Superhero Ethics Podcast. I'm Matthew Westfox, one of your hosts. I'm Jacob Milicic. I am the other one of your regular hosts. And today we've got a really exciting idea. Many of you may also be fans of uh, a web uh, of podcast that I'm a great fan of and that uh, really helped to inspire this podcast, uh, the MCU podcast, where um, Matt and Jeff uh, look at a lot of MCU properties and, and discuss them in great detail. I and they have had some back and forth, and on a recent episode they were doing about um, team uh, about um, uh, things they wanted to see of of two characters like facing off. They got into a discussion about one particular face-off, which was the Punisher and Daredevil. And at one point they said, hey, superhero ethics, um, what do you guys think? What, what makes uh, Punisher and Daredevil different? And I thought, you know what, that, that, that sounds like a fun challenge. That's one I want to take up and uh, uh, seems like a fun idea to, to base a podcast off of, uh, at least a mini one. And then as Jacob and I were discussing it and kicking the idea around, we realized, you know, we've gotten a lot of great feedback from other listeners and fans that we haven't had a chance to respond to. So... We're going to take this episode to start with that question and kind of do a, a feedback response to, to Matt and Jeff, and then to, to jump into some of our other listeners and hear from some of their questions and thoughts to uh, earlier podcasts and, and ideas and, and go into their comments and questions. So, Jacob, let me just start with, with the basis of that question. Um, on the MCU cast, they were, they were wrestling with this idea of what is the difference between Kingpin and Punisher? Or is there one? Are they actually, from a, a moral ethical perspective, fairly similar? So that's it's a it's a very difficult question, uh, and, and one I'm I'm really excited to dive into because it's one of the reasons it's so challenging is because uh, you wouldn't even try to make the comparison. Were there not some similarities? Were there not some parallels you could draw? Uh, the the big thing. I think comes down to uh, at least in the media that that we see in in the Netflix Marvel series, um, it actually has a lot to do with perspective. It also has a little bit to do with their goals. What I mean by perspective is when we're presented the character of Punisher, we are presented as the Punisher as somebody whose mission at its core is centered in some kind of system of morality, right? Where where what Punisher is trying to accomplish. <laughs> is some kind of greater good. And we are still presented it like when, when Punisher and and Daredevil are having their argument, they're they're not arguing about whether it's right to fight crime people, right? They're arguing about whether it's right to use lethal force. Right? Um whereas if Punisher and Kingpin were having an argument, the argument wouldn't it, lethal force, the use of lethal force, whether or not it's warranted, wouldn't enter into the conversation. I think they would both agree that no, like you reach a point, uh, it's it is more efficient and more effective to just eliminate a threat rather than trying to rehabilitate them. Uh, but when when we're presented the Punisher, it's it's still this case of. You know, he something bad happened to him, and now he's on this this mission to correct a major wrong uh, within our government, within um, a particular organization. Whereas Kingpin's principal motivation when he started out uh, was based on his tragedy, his trauma, informing his actions to say, okay, I need to fundamentally change the environment that I'm in to be more like I think it should be. Yeah. And it's it's more it's not quite megalomania, but it's that kind of idea where rather than 
um, fighting the bad things that they happen and fighting the bad people who do the bad things. I want to change the world so that things that I consider bad don't happen as frequently. And, and it's funny from the way you say that because I think one of the issues we're definitely going to get into at some point in this discussion is the fact that Punisher is presented to us eventually as a antagonist. Uh, I'm sorry, as a protagonist. protagonist. Whereas he is at first uh, presented and Kingpin is always presented as an antagonist. And I do think that that's in some ways, I feel like you could, in the same way that like the Punisher starts out as Daredevil's antagonist, but then gets his own story, and thus almost by definition becomes a little more sympathetic. I do feel like you could now have a Kingpin series that in which he appeared much more sympathetic and much more. So I think that that part of the perspective matters. But what I think is interesting is the way you described it. What I'm kind of hearing is, and, and maybe you're not quite meaning this, but I, but the way I take it is, Punisher. Something bad happened to the Punisher, and, and I mean, by his name, he now wants to punish the people who did the bad thing. Kingpin had terrible things happen to him and saw terrible things happening to his mother and to his neighborhood, and now wants to prevent those things happening to others. By that definition, Kingpin's more of a hero yeah, than that, Punisher. that sounds very heroic, right? So again, it's all a matter of perspective. Now, I'm not going to sit here and say I think Kingpin is actually a hero. I also don't think, and I, we've gone on record saying this, I don't think Punisher is, is a hero either. I think that Punisher advances some goals and some agendas that we would consider heroic or good. But I like, for me, I feel that uh, means matter. Yeah. Uh, and like... So to a certain point, your means no longer justify the end or whatever, the, the, the other way around, right? <laughs> the end yeah. is not always, does not always justify the means. Um, and I think P both Punisher and Kingpin would, if they sat down and had a conversation, would agree on the idea that the ends justify the means. That uh, if it is in service of a goal that is noble and just or by their definition is, is correct, right? Because um, I don't think Kingpin is super concerned with nobility, but <laughs> or with justice. Although, again, when we're looking at things from his perspective, he does seem to have his own kind of brand of justice, his own kind of idea about yeah. what is correct and what is right for the world. But whatever gets them to that end goal, that's what they're going to do. I do think that on some level, Punisher is more honest with himself about his motivations, because I think... If you listen to what each one of them is saying their motivations are, I think Kingpin comes across as much more heroic, much more sympathetic. And, and like on that level, I would say I agree with Kingpin's ends. I don't agree with the means he uses. I don't agree with Punisher's ends because Punisher, I think, from the beginning is just saying I am out for revenge on the people who hurt me. A side goal of that may be that these people don't get to hurt other people. Right. But at the end of the day, that's not what Frank Castle cares about. He is out for personal revenge. I think Kingpin tells himself and tells others that his goal is to make sure that the bad people who hurt others, who hurt him, don't hurt others the way they hurt him. But on some level, and I, 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 that show is so psychologically complex that I, I, I'm fairly certain the writers intended this, but certainly what comes across is that on some level, the part of why Kingpin has so much rage, part of why he has so much, you know, he loses control, he decapitates people with a car door, this kind of thing, is because what he is telling himself is a quest for justice, is on some level him doing the same thing that Frank Castle is doing, which is 
processing his feelings of rage and grief and sorrow by doing terrible things to the people who hurt him or, in his case, people like the people who hurt him. Right, or people that, that in some moments upset him. Um, so Kingpin – and this is one of the reasons why Kingpin is such a compelling villain, yeah. right, is that he is very much the hero of his own story. Uh, and you hear this uh, – this is a, a very common trope for – or not trope, but a, a coaching uh, tool for actors uh, when when they're having a problem feeling a character is to always remember that from that character's perspective, most of the time, unless that character is the Joker in certain instances, what that that character's convinced what they're doing is is right, and they've got a, a narrative that has led them to this point. Right. Um. So, getting getting back though, get, getting back to the the question of you know where does the line. Where, where do you draw the line that makes Punisher a hero and Kingpin a villain? If we're accepting that argument, which, I, again, I don't necessarily accept, um, we would have to analyze uh, their means. We've both agreed that their means in, in each case are reasonably deplorable. Right. right? Um, just because C- C- Castle is scraping a bad person's face across glass doesn't make that act any better than Kingpin decapitating, decapitating someone with a car door. Right. right? Like, that that doesn't enter into it. So we we have to fire means. We just have to look at their goals. And here again, like, and I think you raised a very excellent point. Castle's principal goal actually puts him more on the villain side of the of yeah. the spectrum than Kingpin's principal goal. And I don't think I don't think Kingpin's actually achieving what he wants to achieve. But that doesn't mean that the the idea. Well, okay, the the gentrification side of Kingpin's goal is garbage. Fire that <laughs> into the sun, right? But the but the the general principle, the it's the same thing Batman wants, right? right. He wants order, right? And and we we celebrate Batman as a hero most of the time. Well, there's two things I would say. One is that I think even even at gentrification point, I think you and I have a lot of political objections to the way gentrification happens. But I think it's important to remember that, like, for Kingpin, gentrification is a means to an end. Um, and it is – so I think that it is his – in his mind, it is the way of cleaning up a neighborhood, of making it safer, which unfortunately also means whiter and, and those kind of things. Um, but So that – but that aside, but I also think what's really important here is that for Wilson Fisk – what he is seeing in terms of the problems of the neighborhood, in a lot of ways, he and Daredevil have the exact same goal. They want Hell's Kitchen to be better. They like I think if Daredevil knew about what happened to eight-year-old Wilson Fisk, Daredevil would say, absolutely, I don't want that to happen to any child, any mother in my neighborhood. And I'm really glad you brought up Batman because we have talked about how Batman is heroic, but Batman can become really problematic. And in a lot of ways, I think... Daredevil and Wilson Fisk are good Batman and bad, bad, bad Batman. You know, mm. it's, it, it is the sort of the, the line there, the, the um, when he starts to slip into the Because I think an essential part, what Daredevil wants, it seems, is to give people the chance to make the neighborhood the best they can for themselves. Fisk wants to, for him to tell everyone else how the other neighborhood is better. Um but but bring it back to him and Punisher. I I I mostly agree with you, and I do, I do think on that level, Punisher's ends to me are not quite. You know, I think, um, um, Punisher's ends to me are not quite as noble as Fisk's. But I do think there are some differences in their means. 
Um, and I know Paul has some thoughts on this too that we'll weigh into in a few minutes. But first, I just want you and I to go back and forth a little more. Because there's two, there's two things, I think, in the difference between Punisher and Fisk. One I think is legitimate, one I don't. Um, first, the way they're presented to us in the show, Punisher seems to care a lot more about avoiding collateral damage than Wilson Fisk does. To some extent, this feels like bad writing because Punisher goes into hospitals blasting shotguns while nurses and doctors are running around but just miraculously doesn't hit them. So on some level, I feel like the writers do a bad – in that same kind of like – You don't understand, Matthew. He's just such a good shot that right. he can take a scatter shot weapon and only hit bad guys with it. He's got spell sculpting for his shotgun. <laughs> exactly. And, and this is the same issue with like Daredevil not wanting to kill people but hitting them in the head with an iron. There are times when our characters do things that shouldn't live up to their moral values. But even putting that aside, I think the other big difference is the way they treat the people who are – at least in theory, on their side. Um, Punisher obviously gets deeply frustrated with the people who are trying to stop him for good reasons, the other cops. Um, what's the, the computer geek's name who um, he works a lot with? Uh, um, deep Thought. Uh, deep Thought is the, the thing from Gizmo uh, Hitchhiker's it? Guide. No, Gizmo's no, a gremlin. Uh, it's, it has it now been too long. I don't remember the <laughs> character's name, or the character's code name. Um, okay, but you know who I mean. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. The 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 guy who was the yeah. When spook. when people like that screw up, Punisher gets mad at them. Punisher flirts with his wife a little bit to get back at him. Like Punisher like fucks with him a little bit. When people who are trying to do the thing that Wilson Fisk wants them to do screw up, Wilson Fisk kills them. And I do think that that is one specific difference in means between the two of them. Of as much as Punisher thinks that. He can that if you have crossed a moral line, anything can be done to you because you are now a bad guy. But if you're a good guy, you don't that can't be done to you. Wilson Fisk, it seems, believes good terrible things can be done to good guys if it's in service to the larger goal. And I do think that's one major, major difference between the two of them. Right. No, and I agree with that. That, that that's a really good point. It's also to draw another parallel, to draw another uh, similarity between the two of them, they both have terrible anger management. Yes. <laughs> uh, and this is something that that when when it happens with the Punisher, it's scary to us because he's, I feel, because he's being presented as somebody who's on the right side of things most of the time. When it's being presented, when, uh, when, when Kingpin is is having his anger management problems and is you know, throwing a tantrum and killing people or whatever... Um, or, or bludgeoning somebody with his fists. Um, it's it's expected, almost, right? Yeah. It's all like, oh, this is why this is a bad guy. But really, it's the same issue. And it's the same, like, root cause of their problem. Um, of, what, of what makes their, uh, their means so troubling right. to me, so upsetting to me, that they're both principally motivated a lot of the time in, in the moment by their anger, by by this very negative emotion. Mm-hmm. I, and I definitely think, um, and I want, there's one other question I want to ask, and then we should go to some of the other comments. First of all, I think the priest from Daredevil, you know, who, who at one point says to Matt, like, are you trying to do good things because you want the universe to be better? Or are you, like, uh, the, the priest asks Matt the same thing that I'm saying that, that Kingpin and Punisher haven't dealt with, which is, are you enjoying doing bad things to people who you think deserve it? And I think that that priest would, would see 
uh, punish Frank Castle and Wilson Fisk very much in the same light. Um, the other point, though, that I think has to be made, and this is more of a, a meta-commentary about any ethical analysis we do, is that the Punisher and Wilson Fisk are presented to us in fundamentally different ways. You know, Wilson Fisk is very specifically the big bad of the season in which he appears. Um, and he's also always been, in the comics, you know, the, the bad guy, um, often to Spider-Man, even more so than Daredevil. Punisher is presented as, if not heroic, an anti-hero, an, a protagonist, not an antagonist. And I think, I think we're, we're diving into some of how that plays out, but I do think it's important to remember that those things influence the way we see these two characters. And I, I, I think if we'd had an entire season of Daredevil with Punisher as the antagonist, or if, like I said, we had a season of Kingpin, um, that would also change our moral calculus on these two, because it's impossible to, you know, we are not, we don't have a, an objective 360-degree view of these two characters. We have the view that Netflix Marvel is giving us, which is as antagonist or protagonist. Right, right. And, and the, right, that, that was exactly what I was trying to get to when I, when I talked about perspective earlier. Yeah. It's, that, it's that idea that when we are presented these stories, um, we get a, we, we always get a lens, right? There's never a third person omniscient thing happening where we, we know everything that's going on with everybody. There's always a framework associated with it. Sometimes a literal framework where we're uh, dealing with artificial intelligence <laughs> and sometimes uh, a more It, it turns out, framework. folks, that um, attacking Zack Snyder has been replaced by attacking the treatment of Ada in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Go on. So check oh, off a, that bingo well, note. Ada in all artificial life, honestly, in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Like, seriously, uh, writers, writers on, on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., I know you've been renewed for at least another half uh, season, and please, like... You know what you did. <laughs> Fix it. Please. I agree with that. Uh, microchip, David Lieberman. Microchip. By the way, microchip. That's like it. I was, it was driving me nuts. I had to look it up. Awesome. David Lieberman uh, and microchip was his was his like code, code name. name. Awesome. Yep. So let me ask before we get into some comments. Um, what? Where do you think is the similarity? I mean, we, we've sort of mentioned it in, in passing with the other things, but let's specifically dive into how are Kingpin and Punisher similar. So, it, well. Very obviously, their principal means of conflict resolution is violence, uh, and it's they don't really have another avenue that they pursue. Kingpin does actually there's there's a slight difference here where Kingpin actually does pursue other avenues because he's managed to accumulate some wealth and some power and has the ability to to do other things. But when when you get right down to it, if there's something they dislike, their first instinct, their first primary mode, um, primary. Um, Modus operandi, there we go, is to punch it, yeah. right? Punch it, shoot it, kill it dead. Uh, another way in which they're similar, as, as we talked about before, is their, is their anger, uh, one of their principal emotions. They're both they're both uh, examples of toxic masculinity, yes. I would say, very right? so. in, in very many ways. Uh, in, in fact, what I find interesting about each character is the only times we see them being gentle are when they're interacting with, with women. Um, yeah. And it's that to me, like, so with, with Punisher, it's with Karen Page and with um, Lieberman's wife uh, starts with, an, oh goodness, it's been too long. Sarah? Was her Sarah, name Sarah? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and with Kingpin. And, and even there, Punisher with the dog, he's somewhat gentle with the, with the son, but much more so with, with Sarah, with right. David's daughter. Yes. Yes. Right. Exactly. Yeah. With, with his daughter. Um, and with Kingpin, with um, 
his love interest. Again, now it's been way too long, and I definitely cannot remember that character's name. Which is, she's she's from the comics. It's a like mm-hmm. we know this person goes on to marry Wilson Fisk. Um, and when she showed up, I was like, this character's great. It's going to add all the new, new dynamic to the show, and I'm really excited about it. It's going to drive me nuts because uh, my my brain is not working well for names. But Fisk's interactions with her are so so gentle, so um, earnest, Vanessa. Yes, Vanessa. That's the one. Um, so it, it's a case where all of their other interactions are these, like, again, very, very toxic, masculine uh, behaviors. Uh, and that is centered in that idea of anger being the only emotion that's acceptable to express and all of that. And if, if people want to learn more about uh, academically what toxic masculinity is, there's a wealth of information out there that is far more educated on the topic than I. So I'm not going to sit here and try to pretend to be an expert. Um, what, what do you think? To, kicking it back to you, a couple of other similarities you could come up with between the two characters. So I think that that's, that's definitely true. I agree with a lot of what you said. I think, and, and very much tied into that, is that both of them, I think, have a great sense of their own personal power. Um, I do think here's an important to note a distinction. Frank Castles is primarily physical. You know, he's never rich, he doesn't have power, but he feels like he has a physical power over his world. Wilson Fisk, I think, I, I think you're right, he does resort to violence, but, but most of his early attempts to deal with things are much more like the chessboard. I mean, he's much more thinking strategically, whereas Frank Castle is thinking tactically. And, and, but I think, even so, Wilson Fisk does have a degree of physical power to himself, but he also has a degree of that he can move the pieces, he can move the financial pieces, the social pieces... But in both cases, I think they both have a sense of when their power feels taken away, when they feel like they, they are not able to protect the things they love, they're going to lash out in violence, which I think you're right. is a very toxic male thing to do. Um, I also think that they both have a sense of – and you were talking about it, but I think it's really important to re-underline that, that the means justify the ends, that – a that the means justify the ends, but also that the ends justify the, the means. Justify the the means. Sorry, yeah, yep. we both messed that up. Um, the ends justify the means, but also that there's distinctly different classes of people: the good who deserve moral treatment, unless you screw up in, in Wilson Fisk's world, and the bad. And that for both of them, there is no sense of the enemy has to be treated well. You know, I think that both of them have a real sense of brutality and um, sort of the opposite of any kind of chivalry, which we might, which seems a sort of outdated concept, but like, you know, I think Captain America especially would be just horrified by both of these people because he's so dedicated to the idea of like a fair fight, doing things the right and good way, you know? Right, um, and, and somebody who clearly believes in, in rehabilitation, I feel, uh, unless you're like a literal Nazi. Right. But like, and, and even in those cases, I think he... Like, if it's somebody who he knew, who he... Like, if, if Captain America right now um, saw Talbot, saw General Talbot uh, for, at the end of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., he would be 100% sitting there trying to help rehabilitate him. Yes. As it turns out, Captain America was occupied during those events, so <laughs> so that didn't happen. Exactly. Uh, no, I think it's true. I think... And it's... Um, there's a lot of ways in which I am sad about the lack of crossover between the um, Marvel movies and the Marvel TV shows. But Kingpin and Punisher, actually, one of the ways in which I most feel that is in regard to the character of Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. Because I feel like Spider-Man, even more than Daredevil, makes such a good moral foil 
to both Kingpin and like in some ways the best way to understand how similar Kingpin and Punisher both are is imagine both of them in a conversation with Spider-Man. Right. Just because his sort of like boyish innocence and his sort of desire to like, you know, still shake hands after a good fair fight with the people he fights with is just so different from anything Punisher or Kingpin would believe. Plus we get those that delightful mocking of all of the skulls that Punisher puts on all of his things. Yes. <laughs> also very uh, true. The best Spider-Man is the is the snarky witty Spider-Man. Um, very true. Yeah, so so let's um that's kind of the first bit of feedback, but specifically on this question. Uh, Paul, I know, would have wanted to be part of a, uh, this. He couldn't be for time reasons, but he actually sent in some thoughts that I want to read and, and get our thoughts on. Um, so he wrote, um, I think the two – this is Paul, our, our other often co-host. I think the two characters are super different. A lot has to do with perspective, no doubt, but also, one, Castle mostly focuses on kill bad guys and tries to avoid collateral damage. Kingpin doesn't seem to care at all about collateral damage. He'll kill anyone in his way. Point that you made earlier, right? And it's like 100% agree that is a major difference between the two characters. Even though, as you said, sometimes the writers don't do the best job of showing us Castle caring about collateral right. damage. But, um, yeah, exactly. Um, but I believe that that's what, if that's what they're telling us he's supposed to believe in. Um, the second thing he says is that Castle doesn't believe in a material, doesn't benefit in a material fashion from his efforts, except stealing lots of guns. Fisk's manipulations have led him to fantastic wealth and power. So it's easy to see his motivation as justification for his actions rather than the root reason. Of course, Mabel Castle just likes killing people. I, I think, um, yeah, that's an interesting one. I think there's some truth to both of those. Uh, it is very it is very easy for us to see, oh, well, Fisk has a bunch of money, has a bunch of wealth and power, so he must be evil. It's right. very easy uh, for, for many of us, especially uh, in our generation, to, yeah. to demonize or to automatically assume the worst of people who have accumulated massive amounts of wealth. Um, and again, we're, we're never given anything counter to that lens where we're being presented Kingpin as a villain. And I think Kessel to some extent does like killing people. Yeah. I mean, I, I, as I was reading this comment from Paul, I think I, I half agree and half disagree. I, I do think that it's true that it's hard. It's hard to believe like Castle never claims to be altruistic. Fisk claims to be altruistic. And I do think that, the amount of personal benefits Fisk has gotten belies his claim of, of, of uh, altruism to some extent. So I think Paul's right there. But I also think that that last point he throws in as kind of an aside is actually a very important one, that maybe Castle does benefit because he likes killing people. Um, and, and I think it's really relevant that in, the first, in that season of Punisher, one of the points that gets made many, many times is we see soldiers who are really having trouble coming back to civilian life. And, and Castle is presented in sort of opposition to the soldiers who can't let go, you know, that soldier who, who, who digs himself a, 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 a foxhole that he can sleep in and things like that. Whereas Castle is presented, you know, that those people are, are not integrating well because they haven't been able to let go of the war. Right. And Castle is presented as someone who has, and yet he has now come back and found another war to fight. And granted, it's a very legitimate war to fight, but, but I do think that there is something there of Castle is benefiting from this in a way, and that Castle is being able to not have to deal with integrating himself into civilian life because he has found a war. You know, it's that old, old adage of if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Mm -hmm. In season one of Punisher, yes, this is a pretty clear nail for his, his hammer. 
but it does make you sort of wonder if by season three, season four, if, if this happened, I, I kind of hope they don't, but if they did, would the level of, of like finding a nail get, get thinner and thinner and it be really just Castle trying to find a way to not have to stop fighting? Right. No, it, it, I think it's a great point that you bring up that like we're being presented him as 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 a means of contrasting people who haven't gotten over the war, who haven't gotten over the their their experience. But in a lot of ways, he's John Rambo. He's yeah. he's John Rambo from First Blood, where it's the same problem. Where it's like, no, you didn't come back from the war and and shrug it off and and start going on with your life. You found another fight. Right. Uh, and that's actually worse in a lot of ways. So I'm really glad you brought that point up. It's something that I hadn't, um, I hadn't really thought about before, but it's a, it's a, I think it's symptomatic or of, or, or it, 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 if symptomatic's the wrong word, it, it illustrates why he is such a, a violence focused character, I think, because for him, uh, his enemy shifted, yeah. but he has an enemy. And it's never a time he doesn't have any, so he gets that, there's never a time he doesn't have an enemy, so he never gets that lapse in clarity. We get some flashback scenes that are supposed to be showing uh, us him having problems after coming back from the war, right? Right. Having some problems recovering, having, like, nightmares and whatnot. Um, But as soon as he finds another enemy, he's fine. But that doesn't mean we get to actually contrast him with the people who are still struggling. Yeah. Because... All he did was shift his focus and and go back into the soldier mentality. And, and I think that the way you put it is really good because one of the things I think the show does a great job of is saying is, is pointing out that one of the dangers with a with our military and with most militaries, but especially the way it's done now, is we teach people to be killing machines, and we teach them to not worry about who to kill and who not to kill because someone else will tell you. Mm-hmm. And so that gives you a very black and white idea of. These people you kill, these people you don't. And what you're just saying there about how like Captain America or Spider-Man or some of these characters, they often, not not always, but they often want to sort of find the humanity in the person, you know, and, and, and say, is this a person who needs to be killed or can, there, can they be sort of reconciled in some way? I think this is the last thing I would say is a, is a really big similarity is that for both Wilson Fisk and for um, uh, uh, Punisher – if you're the bad guy, there's no way to reconcile that. And even where, like, to me, one of the biggest ways in which I see this with with, um, Kingpin is the way he views Daredevil. Because to most people in Kingpin's position would see what Daredevil is doing is 90% of what I want to do. He is absolutely helping my end goal. But because Daredevil is interfering with Kingpin's specific means of getting to that goal, Mm -hmm. Kingpin sees him as just as bad as one of the criminals. Um, right. And I think that's really relevant. Well, I mean, he is technically a criminal. Yeah. Uh, Daredevil is not operating inside of the legal system in any in any way. Yeah. No, it's very true. These are not sanctioned actions. And it's funny because Wilson Fisk is just as much of a criminal. Yep. But he's a much more respectable one. Right. He it's sort of the difference. It's the white he's the white collar criminal. Yeah. Um so the third thing Paul pointed out was uh as part of why he sees them as different is um and, and quote Castle frequently puts himself in physical jeopardy to help people. I think seeing him get beat up and fight for the underdog is a big part of his relatability. What's your take on that? I mean, that's fair. Um, I like capacity for for self sacrifice is something we like throwing into our heroes to make them uh, more compelling. Uh, it's also something that I, I eh, okay, cynic, cynical hat on. I'm real tired of it. 
like not like seriously we don't need more martyrs we don't need more people trying to to sacrifice themselves or throw themselves in front of whatever um we need we need heroes that actually act responsibly and and help avoid those types of situations and yes sometimes like jumping in front of of a bullet but like yeah he puts himself in harm's way constantly to advance his goals and that is a hero that that is something we've we've traditionally characterized as heroic um I would say that if that's the only thing that separates Frank Castle from Wilson Fisk, that's not nearly good enough. And these these other points that, that Paul has brought up, I I think are good, um, and and I like they do show some distinction. What they don't do for me, and this one again, I I don't think it does enough, is say Castle's a hero, Punisher's a hero, Kingpin's a villain, Fisk is a villain. Yeah, yeah, I, I think at the end of the day. More than anything, what they show me is that the line between relatable villain and antihero is an incredibly gray one. And I think we have pointed out some differences between between Frank and, and, and Fisk, and that, to me, there isn't a bright line, there's a continuum. And I do think Castle is closer, is more along the heroic line than Fisk is in many ways. As I said, not in terms of their goals. I think Fisk's goals are actually more heroic. Um, but, but I think more than anything, it really, it, it really points out that, that A, just how gray an area that is. And that I think almost on any day of the week, you might, if you just looked at their actions on one day, you might say, oh, actually Kingpin is really the hero, you know, because so much of it is contextual. And again, it also really comes down to how these two people's stories are being told. Um, and that I think... From the stories we have been given, I think, though they are very similar in many ways, there are these distinct ways we've mentioned that makes Castle a little bit more heroic or a little more at least an antihero. But that I think you could tell another, like you know, if we did what um, what Matt and Jeff were suggesting of having a a season that was Kingpin and Punisher, like I think a that would be fantastic television and really good. But frankly, depending on how you wrote it, I think you could write it as either one of them being the protagonist. Um, and either one coming out somewhat heroic and being fairly true to the character of each. Like, I think, especially because where they are right now, either one of them could go in, in such a different way, you know? I feel like if I were to write that show or, or have anything to do with it, I would actually make it so that each time you are seeing things from that character's perspective, they're clearly in the right. Yeah. And, and have them at odds with each other. Right, but have have it be a story of two people who are both trying to do something good, and each of them not necessarily using the best means to get there, and and working at cross purposes. Because I think that would be the most interesting and fascinating story, and a really good exercise for what what makes us decide yeah. when someone's a hero and when someone isn't. So, in, in some weird ways, I actually think that this story could maybe even be better told as a book. Mm. Um, and I don't mean a comic book. I specifically mean an actual narrative book. And the reason I'm saying that is because of Song of Ice and Fire at Game of Thrones. Because I like the TV show of those books, but what I think made the book specifically so good is that there is no global narrator. Every chapter is told very distinctly from one character's point of view, and obviously that character is always the hero in their point of view. Mm-hmm. And you often have situations where you have a conversation between two characters as told by one character. And then the next time those two characters interact, 
their interactions are told to you by the other character. And it really makes you question, like, wait a minute, which one of these perspectives is right? Are either right? I think what I would love is a, is a kind of Game of Thrones-style book told from maybe five characters' perspectives, but primarily Wilson Fisk and Frank Castle, where you get to see how each one of them really is convinced that they are the hero of their own story. Because mm-hmm. um, I think that would just be such an interesting way of exploring how these two characters are similar, how these two characters are different, and how easy it is, depending on who's telling the story, for us to decide with one or the other. So for, for Matt and Jeff, um, the answer is, I don't think there is a clear line. Uh, there, there are definitely ethical considerations in each moment, and we can, we can analyze different actions of, of each of these characters as either, no, this is, this is more villainous, this is more heroic, or this is amoral, this is more moral, this is just, this is unjust. Right. But I don't think I can sit here and tell you, well, this is the dividing line that makes Punisher fall on one side and and uh, Kingpin fall on another because I don't think it exists. Yeah. And that may sound like a cop out, but it has been about a 40 minute cop out. So I think (laughs) that we've I think that we've done a a reasonable job of of about time to move on pontificating. But but yeah, I I would definitely agree with that. And and first of all, just thank you guys uh, to Matt and Jeff for, for suggesting this topic. I think there's so much here to discuss. Um, and, and I think I come down where you do, Jacob, that at the end of the day, and, and I think Matt, Matt and Jeff were alluding to this, the reason why a, a season of those two characters together would be so interesting is because although there are differences, they are very hard to sketch out. And I think in some ways, like, to me, part of why I loved Marvel's Civil War so much, and that's actually where we're going to get into some feedback next about, is that it is entirely possible to walk out of Marvel Civil War thinking that Tony was the hero or thinking that Cap was the hero. Mm-hmm. And I think the filmmakers did an amazing job with that because the line between those two characters is so gray. Um, and I think in many ways Punisher and, and Daredevil, uh, Punisher and Kingpin would be very, very similar. Um, so on that note, uh, thank you guys. Let's, let's now turn to some of the other um, listener feedback we've gotten. Um, people who have either sent us in Facebook quotes uh, or, or Twitter things. Uh, and let's keep on going with that topic of civil war, because um, uh, actually, uh, as we were getting ready for um, Infinity War, I, I posted something uh, as superhero ethics and asked people, sort of, what are you, what is your sort of end all thoughts on civil war in terms of how you're getting ready for Infinity War? And we got some great comments. Um, one is from uh, Andy Peterson, um, who is someone who we know through the ju- uh, the Magic Judge program, uh, great guy, and uh, uh, glad to have him listening. And he wrote. I feel based on his experiences in Avenger and Civil War, in Avengers and Winter Soldier, Cap had every reason to not trust the Accords because it puts a group in charge that can manipulate how they respond. He wants to be part of the discussion on what they want to, on what they do so they can act when needed and not wait to respond. He wants to be better for prevention and protection, which a bureaucracy is bad at based on their separate political goals. Um, and there's a second half to what he wrote, but just based on that, just on that, um, that, that sentiment really hit me because I had often been saying, um, you know, Tony is reacting to the events of Ultron and how scared he is of, of trusting himself. I hadn't really given enough credit until Andy pointed it out that Cap has been just as burned from the exact opposite direction. You know, Tony is saying, don't trust me, trust a bureaucracy. Cap has just seen the bureaucracy to which he has dedicated his life, you know, be utterly taken over by Hydra, and now he doesn't want to trust them. Yeah, and this was this was a great point, Andy. Thank you so much for for bringing this up, because uh, he's right. Uh, from from Captain America's perspective, 
there's no such creature like he thought there was an an, an incontrovertible immutable uh, moral institution in shield and that turned out to not be true hydra got in got its tentacles in there and now hydra is like completely turned that thing on its ear and so cap is very much responding to his own each each character and the reason why this conflict comes to a head is each character is responding to their own personal trauma at at being betrayed tony betrayed himself and cap got betrayed by the institutions he held dear yeah and these were things that like if, if there's one person that tony up until that point in his life had really trusted had really felt was like had his back it was tony stark yeah. right to, and, and i'm not saying that because he's a uh, raving uh, egomaniac although he is um <laughs> I, I'm, but i'm saying that because he's you know he's been the principal force in his life driving his life forward right, right. so he's no he's been the person that he can rely on and he's he's clearly built his framework around that which is why he has difficulty making personal connections with people because at the end of the day the person he cares most about is himself um cap got into the damn military uh because not because he was you know going to be any good at all at, at fighting in fact he, he had he struggled during training but he really wanted to help represent his nation he wanted to help he wanted to help with the fight. I actually like. I know you and I disagree with this. I really liked the first Captain America movie, uh-huh. but uh, because that that story of the the guy who tries hard uh, and then gets injected with serum, you know, like classic story of the guy who tries really hard and eventually gets there because of drugs. Yeah. But... <laughs> well, no, and I, I agree. With, I, I and I I will say I like that element of the story. Mm-hmm. I just think the dialogue and the pacing are terrible. I just I just like. It's not that I disagree with it. I just think it's a badly made story, but a good story. But but I do think you're making a good point, especially because one of the things that I like about the first Cap movie is that it really highlights how much Cap is a product of the 30s and 40s. And I do think that that's an important thing to think about here with Cap and Tony is Cap is a product of a time when there was still a fundamental trust in institutions and in bureaucracies and in governments. And... So on some level, like, when that's taken away, that's what scars him. Mm-hmm. Tony is a product of the 60s and the 70s. Tony is a product of the me generation and yep. of individualism and of you are your own captain. And so I think it, make, it makes – I never even thought of it in that perspective until you said it that way. But that, uh, that really helps, I think, to better, to better put it in. Um, uh, uh, hold, ahead, on, hold on, hold on. Uh, continuing on that point because um, there was something that while you were talking, it, it made me realize – uh, so this actually points to um, the differences in their core characters, mm-hmm. uh, because when when they're each presented with this problem, Captain America approaches it from the perspective of a soldier, right? He's like, I don't want my hands tied. I don't want to be cuffed into inaction when I know what needs to be done, right? I want to be able to do what needs to be done, and I don't want some bureaucracy, some institution... Uh, tying me down or making me not able to do what I know is right. Whereas Tony Stark is approaching it from the perspective of a scientist saying you need a system in place that is going to produce a consistent result right. you need that peer we review. all agree with. Yes, you need peer, peer review. review and and, and Cap, Captain America is like, what, what What do you mean peer review? <laughs> and that's, I have a shield. I throw it really well. Yeah. And, and then also get, and this is actually the other part of what Andy said, is that that also gets into just we're making movies about heroes. We're not making law- lawsuit movies. And like the other part of what he said in that email was, or that Facebook post, 
um, to quote him again, here's what I think is a completely different take. I think Cap should have fought the Accords in federal court, blocking them in the same way Trump's travel plan was blocked. We're reading that on the day that the Supreme Court has incorrectly overturned that, but moving on with our lives. Um, the big question about the Accords is who has justification to enforce them? Jurisdiction. In, jurisdiction, thank you. In other words, Cap would have could have fought against the Accords without destroying an airport, through a, although a protracted court battle would probably have broken up the Avengers anyway, and made for a very boring movie entitled Captain America Civil Suit. Now, personally, I think that Captain America, the, the courtroom drama, would have been fantastic, or court, Captain America, the bureaucratic wrangling, but I get that that's not the movie that's going to play well in the theaters that, that Marvel wants to play well, it in. Well, I mean, um, yes and no. Like, do you know how well A Few Good Men did in theaters? Not Avengers good. <laughs> no, no, that's true. That's true. And I think that has, but there, but there, I agree with you. I, I, I love a good courtroom drama. Yeah. I would have loved to see them go that way. Or, or A Time to Kill, the one with uh, Samuel Jackson oh, yeah. and Sandra Bullock and that other guy. A fantastic movie lawyer. I fundamentally disagreed with, but a fantastic mm-hmm. movie. Mm-hmm. Um, so the one of the comment on the Civil War thing um, came from Jess Plummer, who was our, uh, actually our guest when we discussed um, Punisher. Um, and, and she wrote on Twitter, um, in terms of this idea of you know Ca- Team Cap or Team Tony, it's not a yes or no question, which is where – actually, the, the, the question was specifically about, like, should we be in favor of the Accords or not? Um, it's not a yes or no question, which is where these superpowered doofs went wrong, but I'm more Team Tony than not. No, Stephen, uh, meaning Cap, uh, Steve Rogers, no, Stephen, you can't just go to foreign countries to enact whatever justice you feel like. Um, and, and to me, that is that is such an important point that Jess is making, especially because – Cap is the representation, literally, of, so in theory, the best parts of America. Mm-hmm. And so when Cap, but when Cap is presented as saying, I know what's right, I know what's good, and so I'm going to go to other parts of the country without them asking me and do what I think is needed, to me, that's actually the worst parts of America. And that's often like something that really scares me much more than I think is, is heroic. Yeah, this is this is a great point by Jess, uh, bringing up the the imperialist uh, angle, right? Uh, and imperialism has been a part of American uh, the American political landscape for way longer than we would like to admit, um, and I would argue continues to this day. But it's it's a case where, um, and again, yeah, Stephen is Steve Steve Rogers is very emblematic of that. He shows that side of like, well, no, they're doing a bad. I'm going to change the bad, right? And in the in in the sense of how the greater world landscape works, the the idea that you can just like because you you have the power, right? You have the the technology in the case of some of the Avengers or or actual superpowers in the case of others, you just go to another sovereign nation and do whatever you want because it's right. There's a reason why JLA it's the Justice League of America. They don't. They there's a, a huge turn in that in the DC comic series when the Justice League starts to actually get involved in world affairs, and it's like there there are many different stories about how well they do at that. Yeah. But the the fact of the matter is, and it, so she's absolutely right. It is not a you know. 100% accords as written must do it this way or. Um, or like no, we we no regulation, no nothing. There has to be something. There has to be some kind of of sane middle ground. And the fact that neither of our heroes, the fact that Tony and Steve don't even try to approach it from the perspective of okay, let's work on this together, is 
again, that would have been a very different type of movie, wouldn't have had the physical conflict. I would have liked seeing that movie too, where they're all like, where they're struggling and it's, and it's like 1776 where it's like pulling teeth, trying to get a little bit of momentum. Yeah. The bureaucratic wrangling. That, yeah. To, like, and, and I will say that, that one, and then we really should move on. One of the things I loved about that movie and I almost wish we'd had more of is I think T'Challa, Black Panther is so essential to that because he is representing quite literally the non-American superheroes, the non-first worlds, although Wakanda is very much a first world nation. Mm-hmm. By by economic decisions, but by economic perspectives, but isn't perceived as such. Like um, he represents a perspective of wait a minute, what about the rest of the world? Things. Um, I want to move on. So there's a couple other episodes that we got some great commentary on. Um, one was the heroes on the couch episode, um, which we got two great responses that I wanted to read quickly. Um, one of our, our listeners, Danny B, wrote. Um, Born Again Daredevil, which I think is he's referring to. Um, uh, that's a specific line in the comic books. Um, might have been the first superhero with depression. Um, and Netflix's Jessica Jones was one of the best portrayals of PTSD that I've seen in any medium. Um, and, and I think he's right. I, I don't know the specifics about Daredevil, and I certainly don't want to claim that it was the first with depression, but I think it's... Daredevil, I think, is one of the first characters where we've really seen that being wrestled with. And I think that across the board, Netflix has been doing such a great job with acknowledging these issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other one we got in regard to that issue was a more personal one, but I think even really important for that reason, uh, which is the, the host of Stealing the Remote, another great podcast uh, and, and fan of ours, and I'm a fan of theirs. Uh, he wrote, uh, as another mostly ex-suicidal, definitely ex-teen, I really appreciate this episode. Um, and I, and I, I really want to just honor that because I think it's so powerful when, as we did on that po- podcast, but, but, but also as others, can just name like, these, when we're talking about mental health issues in these characters, the reason they matter is because they're issues that most of us have dealt with ourselves, or at least a lot of us have dealt with ourselves. And I know for me, and I've heard from so many others, you know, whether it's relating to Jessica Jones's PTSD or whether it's relating to um, uh, uh, the borderline personality issues that come up in a Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, a, a very different show, but one I think is still super relevant, um, or, or, Dan, or Daredevil's Depression – I think there's so much to be said for, you know, us as viewers and listen and uh, being able to really appreciate these stories because they represent people. Yeah, I, I agree. I really appreciated these comments. And as a mostly suicidal, absolutely and thankfully ex-teen, or mostly ex-suicidal, <laughs> yeah, excuse me, not mostly suicidal. I'm fine, guys. I'm doing fine. I've been fine for a long time. Uh, but yeah, like that, there was a time in my life. So that that episode was uh, it really hit home for me as well. Yeah. Um, so another episode that that drew a lot of attention um, was Ready Player One, uh, especially because I think a lot of people really answer these questions, especially about the the difference between the book and the movie. Um, and I know one of the points we made in that was um, with this idea of the, that there's one sort of little throwaway comment in the movie where the where it seems to be making a direct commentary on Facebook and whether Facebook should be sort of taking responsibility for the role that it plays in society. Um, and, and Beth Carabin, uh, who's a, a, a friend and a, and a listener, wrote, um, I was struck with the same thought with the movie, but not with the book. Perhaps it's because the Facebook privacy thing is more of a visible issue now than it was in 2014. But the scene in the movie with Morrow and Halliday talking about the consequences of their invention of the Oasis was great. I wish they developed it further. Of course, the place to develop such a thing for discussion would have been the book. Sad face, sad face, sad face, sad face. Book <laughs> Yeah, well, the... the... Our opinions on this are, are well documented at this point, but there are many things the book falls on, on its <laughs> face on. Uh, so yes, like this, this 
100% agree. I, I and I caught the the same kind of um same kind of thing about the the use of our data. What's funny is that even after we recorded that episode, there have been changes yeah. to to Facebook. There's been there's been a court case. There's been some scrutiny applied to how Facebook uses uh, user data. Um, and so, like, it's interesting that a movie that was like eh, honestly not that like intellectual uh, was was really on the nose with with current commentary in one way even if it was a bit of a throwaway. So agree, Beth, agree. Yeah, I I would definitely be the same way. I think that that's, I think it's one failing of, like I remember at one point in the book, they actually mentioned that an entire presidential campaign takes place in the Oasis. But there's never a mention of that being in any way problematic, as we may have learned that, you know, (laughs) um, know, even putting aside just the the horrific elements of, uh, you know, Russian interference and things like that, um, but even even not even going that that conspiracy minded, although it's certainly a conspiracy I believe in, but just the way that like how heated Facebook discussions can get, you know. And and I I am I'm not uh, a fan of Orson Scott Card in many many ways, um, but I will say I think one thing that he got right much more so than um, the the author of Ready Player One did is the degree to which online online media as political debate can be manipulated. You know, there's that major plot line in uh, Ender's Game of Ender's two siblings basically using, I, I mean, to some extent, uh, you know, uh, uh, Orson Scott Card predicted the blogosphere and predicted our modern media in the way that these two can basically be trolls and can completely control discussion. And I think that that's, the movie gets into it, but it's one more failing of the books so that it just, it doesn't take into account, okay, if you have all of this world discourse happening online, how does that actually? What are the effects of that? Uh, and on the same topic, uh, a little bit divergent, but I've I've had a conversation with somebody recently who was uh, strongly defending uh, the book, but they were t- coming from a perspective of, and, and we've heard this before, right? Where it's it's a case of somebody saying, "This is intended as candy, right? It's not intended to hold up to any kind of scrutiny," uh, and of course. My my response is always like to something like I've been oh, well if it doesn't hold up to scrutiny it's probably not holding my interest very long either yeah um but like so like and and I and I appreciate the enjoyment we talked about the enjoyment of of the thing but we I don't feel that that detracts from our ability to to agonize and and struggle over the fact that we really wanted these topics to be more more nuanced and and more intellectually explored than they were in the piece of media. Yeah, no, and I think that's true, and I think that that's the idea of it should it doesn't have to hold up to scrutiny is one that I think has really changed in part because I think we are now much more aware as a society that those things do matter. You know that Ghostbusters, which was one of my absolute favorite movies, is absolutely meant to be candy. It's not meant to be a serious movie. It's not meant to hold up to scrutiny. But I, as an eight-year-old boy, saw it, and I saw Bill Murray being a flat-out stalker but have that be treated as a romantic thing and in the end get the girl. Mm-hmm. And I guarantee you that that gave me some negative ideas about how romance should, should be, you know? And so I think that to that extent, we do have to hold all these things up to scrutiny because they do have an effect, you know, and that's the whole, the microaggression idea. Um, on our, on, in terms of our episode about devotion and the, the sort of who are the people who really are kind of like the, the, the devoted to a cause and, and to different things. Uh, Andy Peterson, who we mentioned before, he also wrote in here, uh, quote, I think a good family example in terms of family devotion 
would also be Mr. Freeze. He's a good example of what you would do for those you love. Right, Mr. Freeze being somebody who who is trying to cure his wife. Yeah. Right, and so like he he becomes a villain and, and does a bunch of illegal things, but all, his ultimate goal is to fund his research to find a cure. Uh, for his wife that he that he's cryogenically frozen to preserve, um, and so there's there's an example of devotion to a cause driving somebody to do things that we no longer agree with. Yeah. And the the topic, so thank you, Andy. The topic of devotion, uh, we we hadn't hit, I don't think, in that episode so much on ends means. Uh, we talked a lot about ends means, and by we I mean myself and Rob, um, during uh, the the Way of Kings episode, but. Uh, it's it's a topic I, we're going to be circling back on in many other of of these discussions because it is ultimately what what we use to separate heroes from villains a lot of the time. And, and I think that one of the um, I think what Andy's getting at is that one of the things that devotion to a cause can do is it can start blinding you to the ethical pro. You know that it, I think it is one thing to make a calc. Like in some ways, I feel like Frank Castle. And maybe here, go back to our first question. Here is a difference between the two of them. Frank Castle makes a calculated ethical decision of, I am in no way ethically concerned with what is done to bad people. Mm-hmm. Kingpin, I feel like, on some level, it's just that he is so, dev- like Mr. Freeze, I think they're both examples of where you can be so devoted to a cause that you know in your heart is right and just and good, that anything done in service to that cause becomes right and just and good. And so you're sort of, because it has that, that, that paint over it, it's hard to actually see how morally problematic the things you're doing because that devotion can wind up blinding you in so many ways. Right, right. No, exactly. So and it's, it's, that's a topic that we, we talked about in that particular episode, the idea that once you get to a certain uh, – like with Londo Mallory, right? With Londo Mallory, yeah, once you get per- to a certain – He's level, from Babylon 5, one we've mentioned a couple of times. Yes, yes, yes. Londo Mallory from Babylon 5. Uh, he He's a character who gets to uh, a position where he, he wants to restore his, uh, his failing uh, government, his failing people, his failing nation. Um, but the he gets him he gets in way over his head, just just completely uh, sabotaging the thing that he wants to actually to to bolster and and to yeah. bring back uh, because he, he's got the blinders on. He's just like everything that I do in service of this cause is fine, and then when he starts to get hit with consequences, he goes. Oh, well, now he's now he's in it past here, right. and of course, visual gag, so nobody can actually see where my <laughs> hand is. It's above my head. <laughs> yeah, and and I think that that's essential, and I think that that gets to a point that I hadn't really considered much before, but is that, um, and really I think applies to both Londo Malari and Kingpin and some of these others, which is that the other thing when you are so devoted to a cause like that is it makes you incredibly easy to manipulate. You know, one of the the, the plot lines that runs throughout. Babylon 5 is that because Malari wants to do this so badly, anyone else can come along and say, Malari, I believe in the same cause you do, and I think we need to do this thing. Malari is going to go along with it, even though that thing is actually often the people who are saying that don't care about the cause, they just want to benefit themselves. Mm-hmm. And I think that's actually something I, th- I don't think I've actually we've talked about before, but I think is relevant. In a lot of ways, Kingpin is a puppet. Like, he doesn't realize it, but he is absolutely being led by the nose by Madame Gao and the rest of the hand. He's a hand um, puppet. 
Yes, yes, he's actually a hand puppet. Um, And it's it's sort of painful to mention that because that was so well set up and then the payoff of what the hand is actually doing is so poor um, because Defenders and, and Iron Fist have problems. But even putting that aside, I think what it gets to is, and oh, and here's again going all the way back, in a way, Kingpin is where Punisher is when he's still in the military. Because Kingpin, you know, Punisher was so devoted to his cause of believe what the colonel tells you that he winds up shooting an innocent man because he thinks it's true. In the same way, Fisk winds up, you know, actively bringing about this thing that could wind up destroying all of New York City. Like, the events of Defender are d- direct result of the machinations that Kingpin put in, put in play, you know, mm-hmm. put in motion. He has no idea about that because his devotion allows him to be manipulated so badly by Madame Gao and the rest of the hand. Yep. Yep, absolutely. Um, so, and lastly, you mentioned the Way of Kings uh, episode, which obviously I was not able to be a part of, which I was sad about, but uh, you and Rob McKenzie did a great job on. And there, um, Paul Romaine, another one of our listeners, wrote in, um, finally got to this episode I'd saved a while ago. I really enjoyed the discussion of the oaths and how each character's choices fit or don't fit into them. And this is uh, just a reminder that, um, that in those books, there's the idea of these, these oaths that different characters take that sort of are, are supposed to decide how you live your life. Um, and he continues, I had not previously appreciated how many of Kaladin's actions in particular can be viewed through that lens. I'm hopeful for a future episode on my favorite character, uh, Sezeth Sunsun Valano. Uh, I think he provides some interesting material. Uh, Seth Sunsun Valano is somebody that I will eventually talk about uh, when we record another episode. But boy, howdy, that that is a giant bag of cats. Uh, that particular character is so. One of the things we talked to, so first of all, thank you, Paul. Uh, I believe his last name is pronounced Romine, but I'm not 100% on that. Okay. Speaking of somebody who's had his last name mispronounced basically his entire life, apologies if I got it wrong. Um, and feel free to correct me if you see me in person or you can, like, give me I, – I speak IPA. I know the International Phonetic Alphabet. Um, so just just let me know how it's pronounced and I'll, and I'll correct it in the future. Um, but two, two things I wanted to point out here. One – um, something that we, we talked about on the episode that has become more apparent as I've read more is that each of these principal characters that, that become these knights uh, are fundamentally broken, right? Fundamentally what? Fundamentally broken. Mm. They get mentally broken some way uh, by, by some event. So Kaladin in particular is actually depressed. Uh, so getting back to that, that earlier topic, uh, here's, here's actually I feel a great example of a, of a depressed character who is a hero in, in media. Um, the more I read uh, of Kaladin, particularly in Words of Radiance, which we haven't done an episode on that, but but I plan to, um, the more I identified with his personal struggles in that in that area, uh, it hit really close to home. Uh, but it, it makes that the event that we were talking about. So what Paul is referring to is the one of the principal O's of the Knights Radiant is is life before death, right? Um, and also uh, Strength Before Weakness, Journey Before Destination. The Journey Before Destination is the big one, right? Uh, it's the the um, means before ends, mm-hmm. right? It doesn't matter how you get there, if or it doesn't matter where you get to if how you get there was, was not was not well. And so Kingpin whole... and Punisher are not Knights Radiant. Right, they, they, are, <laughs> they would never be members of the Knights Radiant, like not even Skybreakers. Um, so the, the idea is that at some point... He desecrates the corpses of his enemies 
to wear their because they have chitinous armor skin to wear their skin as armor because he he knows that they hate it when their when their corpses have been desecrated and it's going to draw all of the enemy's attention during a fight. Mm-hmm. It works fantastically, but he is basically triggering the entire army. Right? He's like ethically super duper problematic. Right? But because again, it's it's a question of perspective when we're seeing the story. We're we're all like, okay, he's doing this to save lives, so he's doing this in service of one oath, but he's breaking another one yeah. by doing it. So, and, and that that particular conflict, I so far in my reading has not come to a head, but it is it is an interesting thing about when our heroes in service of one goal, just like with Punisher, just like with Kingpin, going circling right back around to the beginning, when when our heroes or our villains are um doing whatever it takes to reach their particular objective, even if their particular objective is very noble, that doesn't mean we shouldn't be scrutinizing those actions and saying, well, that's not particularly heroic. Yeah. Right. I'm sorry, but like you should, like there was absolutely no need to take that guy's face and rake it across some glass. Like that's (laughs) like, I get it. You're mad, but well, or, I, or po- poking the guy's eyes out like he that, was dead. That's a topic I, I really hope I can be a part of that when we get in that podcast because and this, this is a whole other can of worms uh, or bag of cats as you put it so well. Um, and I admit this partially comes from the fact that I have not studied martial arts like you and like some others. But the more I have these conversations, the more I come to think that to me the idea of fight – once you're fighting with violence – the idea of fighting honorably or fighting nobly is just such bullshit to me. Because on some level, I feel like what that does is perpetrate the idea that fighting can be okay. And I am on some level so dedicated to the idea that fighting is always – not that it should never be done. I'm not a pacifist. But that it is always going to be so bloody, so ugly, so awful. That the best way to do it is to win as fast as you fucking possibly can. By And, 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 and then I, I still – I mean there's still to me some lines of like not um, – not, you know – harming innocence, collateral damage, things like this. Um, but on some level, to me, the idea of desecrating bodies in order to upset your opponent so that you can win, I, and that, again, not to launch that issue now, but my knee-jerk reaction is, of course you do that, because or else you just keep fighting longer and more people die and the war goes on. And long. understand, it's not so. Like, and one of the reasons why it's it's harder to put down as 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 right or wrong, he's not doing it so that they win the battle. They're winning these battles anyway. Mm, he's doing okay. it to protect people who are being used as cannon fodder. Uh, so there's these people who are who are completely unarmored, who are being rushed out in the front to draw the attention of the enemy archers, and he's all like, "If all the enemy archers are just shooting at me, and I have this magical dancing power that lets me avoid every single arrow and make sure that I don't get hurt, then I get to protect my entire team. I get to protect my people. Nobody dies. Yeah, right. And so, again, very heroic end goal." But you're still doing something very, in my opinion, amoral. Uh, the the thing, and we're we're gonna have a podcast about the use of violence and violence as a means of conflict resolution. Absolutely, um, because it is something I have very strong opinions on. But it's interesting to hear your perspective as somebody who hasn't studied martial arts, uh, because my perspective is when you have when you've approached a situation where you feel violence is necessary to resolve this conflict. 
you do want to be efficient about you, you don't want a fight to be prolonged right and you don't want to um get yourself into a situation where your own livelihood will be compromised when you're all like well there's no other way i have to do this but there is this sense that the more control you have, so the more practiced you are, the more disciplined you are, sure. the less you're going to have to injure the other person in order to resolve that conflict. And, and, and that is an interesting idea. And that I think I 100% believe in, especially because the more in control you are, the less likely you are to do collateral damage. And that's 100% something I support. For me, it's more, and this does tie into martial arts, and this is, I think, a, a separate conversation. To me, anything that leads you to the idea of War and fighting can be beautiful because it's noble and chivalrous and honorable. And that's that's the kind of stuff where I'm rejecting. And it's part of why – you know, as again, I've said before, it's why I love Logan so much because Logan is saying that fighting the good fight is still brutal and awful and terrible. Um, let me just – I want to read the – we're way over time now. And so I want to read the um, last quote and then and it kind of goes some final comments. Um, and that was in regard to the Be Super episode, which I know uh, you were not part of, but um, – where we had a, a, a great discussion with the founder of the Be Super Project, which I'm going to include a link to. It's a fantastic project um, that is really all about um, taking the ideas of the superhero world, these ideas that we're talking about, and applying them to real life. Like really asking people, like, okay, you've seen Black Panther. What does that? What questions does it raise to you about racism? How can you live that out? You know, how can? And, and, and I think it's just such an amazing thing. And so I just want to honor uh, someone else who really. Uh, noticed that uh, Megan Dumas, who wrote in um, as as someone who has but isn't using an education degree, this episode, especially the first half, really got my senses tingling. Picturing how to incorporate this into a uh, high school history and English setting, and the idea of using this media and jittering discussion makes me happy. Um, and Megan, I want to thank you so much, uh, and I want to say that um, if that if that happened, the the credit goes much more to the B Super Project and to us. And I I feel like we're just here the megaphone for B Super, which I'm really glad we can do. But 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 to me, I I kind of wanted to close with that because more than anything, that that's what I I kind of want out of this podcast is that I hope that. For all of our listeners, I hope this is a really enjoyable thing to listen to. I hope that you get to uh, have some discussion stimulated, and I get hope that you get to to you know you know sit in your car and, and yell at the radio and, and tell me or Jacob or Paul how we're wrong. But I also hope that that as I am, and that I think all of us are, that as we're 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 raising these ethical questions, you're not just thinking about them as abstract literary questions. You are thinking about how do they apply to your own life? How do these questions of you know, what does it mean to be a hero or a villain? Think about how does it, how do you deal with it when you think someone at work or, or in a relationship is wrong to you? And, and questions about violence come up and, and things like that. So, so I just wanted to close with that, um, that, that to me, I think definitely check out the Be Super Project. And I hope that as you're listening to this podcast, one of the things you're thinking about is how are these questions that people with superpowers are dealing with similar to the questions that we're dealing with in our own life? And, and how do we use this? How do we use this to not only affect change in our own lives, but to go out and, and talk to others. Yeah, I don't actually really have much to add to that. Uh, uh, thank you, Megan. I really enjoyed listening to that episode. And I think the Be Super Project is a is a fascinating idea. It's something that, that uh, it contains ideas that, that we all could stand to apply uh, to our lives because we, in many ways, can be the heroes that we are idolizing um, much more than they are because those are stories uh, and we, we do live in the real world and we can make a difference. Yep, absolutely. So um, how are you guys making a difference? That's actually a great question to think about. How are you um, – how 
I would love to hear from anyone if there's a way that something you've seen in a superhero or a comic book or, or, or sci-fi or fantasy in any of these genres, what's a way that, that, that you've seen that or, or and it's given you something to think about or it's given you something to that changes the way you view uh, the world or, or, or something like that? Um, let us know. You can find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Superhero Ethics. You can email us at SuperheroEthics at gmail.com. Um, and, and any of those ways, obviously we love to get feedback and we will love to uh, take your feedback and read it on the air. So on behalf of myself, on behalf of Jacob, on behalf of Paul, uh, on behalf of all of you guys, all of our great listeners who have sent in so many great comments, thank you so much and have a good day. So you, you said we're more the megaphone, but we're actually a little bit under a billion microphones. Yeah. <laughs> from a megaphone. Yeah. Uh, given that a microphone is a thousandth of a phone and a megaphone would be a million phones. Yeah, that's probably true. <laughs> <laughs> well played.